This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to 3RRR's Radio Therapy. Thanks for tuning in to our hour of mayhem and medical nonsense. Normally, you'd be listening to the fabulous Dr. Autonomy, but she has become a mum. Yes, absolutely. Another therapist has been brought into the world. Baby Gabe, well done, Autonomy. We're thinking of you all the time. How's the poo going? Now, this week on Radio Therapy, Dr. Malice is going to come in. He's got a very interesting topic. What happens when 1,300 shrinks get together? I'll tell you what happens. It's called mass hysteria. Sigmund McZiff is going to talk about a more serious topic, mental illness and homelessness. What can we do? And this is going to be followed up with Dr. Anabolics, who's going to talk to us about drug and alcohol reform, all things to do with this. These are major topics that confront our society. So all this with the magnificent Kent pushing your buttons here on 3RRR's Radiotherapy. Now... Dr. Malice, we haven't done a show together, what, for two years? This is a reunion of reunions. I mean, the whole panel here, from it's a, like a blast from the past. It is, isn't and it? And it's an absolute delight yeah. to be in, back. In the yes. 16 years of we've been going, we've sort of morphed around and come in and out. But, yes, yeah, so, so we thought we'd do a fill for you. There you go. Oh, this is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> now, catch-up. I've got catch-up. I've got catch-up. I've got catch-up too. Oh, you better start. Yeah, well, I mean, for anybody who's read The Age this morning, there is uh, an interesting article on page three about ECT. Mm. and uh, uh, That's a little guy from outer space. Yeah, that's right. And it's a <laughs> call for shock therapy crackdown. And the use of shock therapy to treat mental illness has risen almost 50% in the past decade mm. in Victoria, apparently. Um, now... When you read this article, and I must say I, I looked at this and it, it jumped out at me over my cornflakes this morning, and then I went through it and I thought, what a crappy article. Um, it's, uh, it's very selective, and it doesn't really drill down at all into the you, what ECT is about, and uh, it, it's quite sensationalized. Um, the people who are referred to are... I would not consider experts in the area, and uh, in many respects, I would think that they are ideologues. And uh, so it's quite concerning when we have an article such as this, which, if anything, only serves to increase uh, any sense of the controversy surrounding this treatment, which is for many people, life-saving and effective in the treatment of severe depression, which doesn't respond to other forms of treatment. Now, I have said in the past that uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest did for ECT what Idi Amin did for international diplomacy. Yes, I, and, I remember it well. Yeah, and yeah. I... Uh, I recognize that ECT is not the most straightforward and uncontroversial of treatments, but I must say, if I had severe depression, which wasn't responding to antidepressant medication, it is undoubtedly the treatment that I would go for myself. It's a a very different prospect getting ECT today compared to maybe 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely, with uh, with much smaller um, voltage doses, with modified treatment, with muscle relaxants, with uh, it, it, it's 
quick acting and when appropriately used it's highly effective now that's not to say it comes without side effects it does come with side effects but it can be life-saving and you don't want to i think deny people who are at great risk yes. of uh basically of death from yeah. uh from one or other causes uh of this treatment the other, the other thing that was interesting in that article, which I say, think says a lot, is that they mentioned the 50% increase, but of course a great percentage of that, as they mentioned, is in the private sector. Now that means that the majority of people who are electing to have regular treatments are voluntary clients of, of psychiatrists in, in private hospitals, in, in um, non-gazetted hospital beds. So the, the other, in other words, these are voluntary patients who are saying, this works for me and I would like it again. So I think that's, if, you know, if, if, that's worth keeping in mind. This is mm. not being forced on people, mm. except in very, very few circumstances. But there are a number of people for whom they say, look, I, this has worked for me in the past. I would much rather have um, one ECT um, treatment per month or per week or whatever it is than suffer from the depression I get without it. The unfortunate part about all these thousands of people, and there are thousands of people in Melbourne who are having regular treatments as a volunteer person, as a voluntary patient, is that they keep very quiet about the results. And so, unfortunately, unlike many other parts of medicine like iron ear or obstetrics or cardiology, the people who have good results in psychiatry are are silent, unfortunately. And and you only hear about the bad uh, bad aspects. We we have very bad copy because of that. And there are thousands of people who vote with their feet regularly and say yeah. this is the treatment that I would like. Yeah. So that's, that's to be kept in mind, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've got two um, areas of uh, one serious and one not serious. Um, firstly, uh, I want to commend the Aries Inlet Under 10 Eels football team on their incredible <laughs> performance on Saturday against Ocean Grove. Played four hard quarters. There were children there that actually touched the ball. And uh, there were a few um, forays into the forward, you know, contested possessions. There was, it was just magnificent. Uh, our girls played magnificently, running the wings, getting into the, into the place. So it's it bo- was, girls and boys on the of course, yeah. of course. Okay. Yes, yes. And I understand that uh, the scouts from the Melbourne Football Club were down there at yeah. Aries Inlet well, looking uh, for an entire replacement. Yeah, well, they could. they could. They could. <laughs> they, these kids could play, could walk onto the G tomorrow and replace Melbourne. Thank There's no much. doubt about it. So they were they were sensational. They were, and they all came off very happy, and and it was. It was belied by three of them came up and said, who won? So just playing for the joy of the game. Now, I just have to say the Hawthorne Scouts were also down there because they want a little bit of a softer touch after <laughs> yes, a number of their players yes. have been yes, found was, to have excess yeah, testosterone. No, yes. we, don't, we don't have any of that. The, <laughs> the other thing that uh, happened on the surf coast at Fairhaven Surf Life Saving Club on a very rainy Saturday night was we had a talk... Uh, called uh, On Effective Altruism. And the speakers were Peter Singer, um, Julian Savalescu, and the moderator was uh, Senator Richard Di Natale. And 250 people turned up in the middle of winter to hear this talk. And it was really quite interesting. Peter Singer, as everybody would know, is a world-renowned philosopher who... uh, animal rights he started he cut his teeth on that and he's written two books in recent times um the life you can save and the most good you can do is his most recent book and he spoke on the topic of how to be an effective altruist and the 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 basic elements to it were these days you can actually 
uh, uh, through different web-based organisations, look at the efficiency of donating. Mm. So, you know, if you donate $100 in Australia, you might improve the life of one person. If you donate $100 in Africa, you could save the lives of 30 children. So, And it was looking at how to balance this. And as a society, I suppose what he's asking for is a sort of a shift in the way we approach, you know, we don't need as much as we've got and therefore it's appropriate that we um, we donate some of that or give some of that uh, to, to the rest of the world as we see it. And it raised some it raised some really interesting discussion. Um, I, I don't know what you guys think about altruism. I, I have a, I've got we can't you never can have a conversation unless you have a, com, a, a counterpoint. And if I, I sort of sat there thinking, you know, what are we as human beings over time? And history is always the greatest teacher of the future. And if you look at human history, it's one of survival. And it's often survival of the fittest. Um, We're programmed for it. We're genetically programmed for it. There are some philosophers that might argue that, in fact, if we don't change that genetic program by manipulating it, then we have no future uh, as a race. Um, So it led to all of these sort of in and under conversations. It was a very interesting evening. But if you wanted to look that up, if you you Google Peter Singer and then look at the organisations he's attached to, you'll see exactly what the tenor is. And he's got a great TED Talk as well. Was the counterpoint... Ineffective altruism or no altruism at all? What was when you said? No, the, I think both. Ineffective altruism, I think, was the counterpoint for this talk. But you know, I'd go further and say, you know, uh, to really balance the argument, you know, l- look at the justification for altruism. And historically, you know, humans are not generally as as a mass altruistic. It's an interesting question to ask when you are called called by an organization to donate. Yes. And the question to ask is how much what what percentage of that which is donated actually goes to the cause that you are calling for? How much goes to the organization who's calling? How much goes to the yes. the the so-called volunteers or the administrative staff? Um and that's that's you, I mean, I think it's very important in terms of altruism that we get bang for our buck. Absolutely. And, uh, mm. and another dimension of altruism, it's very often, uh, as you said, linked to individual survival, mm. whereas there's something in the model that altruism by a group towards another group ensures the group survival. Yes. Because envy and territoriality are often the uh, foundations of declaring war, which yeah. is about life and death. Yeah. So if you have us and them, yes, that breaks down that breaks barrier. That, it breaks down that barrier. Yeah. So we have to rethink yeah. even the context yeah. of altruism. He, he did. Uh, Peter Singer raised one point, which I which I took uh, exception to, and that was he said, you know, there are studies that show that people that have, you know. Um, Audis or you know high-end luxury cars, they they enjoy them. They get a pleasure from them from by looking at them. But in reality, they should go for a, a less flamboyant car, you know. And it's just you know the looking. At, and I, I I was compelled to say, have you ever sat in my Audi A4? Because I got to tell you, I get as much pleasure inside the car as I do from outside the car. I'm not sure you his audio. 
audience at that moment. <laughs> the, the other thing, too, is when you talk about, you know, should we donate to Africa, as, as an example you mentioned, mm. I think we're past the time when you can consider that um, a remote uh, connection. Mm. We know uh, altruism now can it's, easily be seen as being a connection with the people who you're connected with, and we are connected to Africa. Yes. We, we can no longer say that, it, we, A, we have nothing to do with what's happening in the, in the Congo when we're digging up stuff next to their, you know, huts to put in our mobile phones. You know, mm. we, we are impacting on their life. We have we are having by the very act of buying yes. a new phone by the millions we are well, we are impacting on the lives of those kids who are living in the yeah. Congo. Even so we can't say we've got yeah. nothing to do with them anymore. No, yeah. even if you talk about self interest, you know, to improve the health in Africa mm. impacts on the world. Well, as we've just seen so with Ebola. How, how many and also how many immigrants there are mm. pressing all around um, on all the mm. shores. Mm. This is this is part of us now. Look we're gonna we're gonna go straight into uh, Dr. Malice, who's going to talk to us about 1,300 hysterical psychiatrists. Well, that, that's a prejudiced intro. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, a neurologist. I'm allowed. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, we'll come back to the group phenomenon of, of what happens when 1,300 shrinks actually get together. They fragment. There is no unitary voice, which is wonderful, because what we need, I think, is diversity uh, for the complexity of what our profession, psychiatry, actually attends to. Now, what it started off, really, and to introduce to our dear listeners, is the very a theme was psychiatry is science and art. So it already encompassed the two great domains of human endeavour, leaving spirituality as the other. Obviously, that doesn't rate in psychiatry much at a congress. But uh, this was a subtitle, Measures and Thinkers. The implication being that scientists, I think, are the measurers, and the artists, I think, are the thinkers. And the relationship between these in our profession amount to those of us who sit with patients whether in our outpatients, private, public, inpatients or voluntary or involuntary in the many, many settings and the researchers who are extending from naturalistic studies of societies and intercultural psychiatry all the way down to functional MRI, brain scans and getting inside in real time how the actual brain is ticking and how these two more than two domains actually come together when you and your shrink actually discuss suffering because really Mm. no contented person should ever go to a shrink and that amounts to whether it's adults elderly young or mothers and babies really this is really a a misconception really i i if i'm contented but what about maintenance of contentment if I see my shrink just to maintain my contentment. That's a bit but, more I mean, controversial. It doesn't, doesn't need to be a shrink. It could be good relationships I have with my, the people around me, like you guys. Well, we are actually off duty. <laughs> <laughs> this is called Sunday morning. Okay. <laughs> damn, damn. And uh, we... chatting just before coming on uh, if we go to social gatherings and we declare that we're a shrink sometimes we get the most uh, extraordinary responses uh, from the person sitting next to us at a dinner table bad move (laughs) (laughs) so what I think we have to take a step back and in my area in child psychiatry many times I get parents who are delighted to say that their child's so thrilled to come and see me Mm. which is the greatest worry 
I mean, they are saying it with goodwill, perhaps to try and compliment or sweet talk or whatever. But in fact, no healthy child should be delighted to go to a doctor. And it really is one of the paradoxes that I have to then disillusion the parent and the child that while I'm glad to see them, I hope the day will come when they really don't want to see me, uh, meaning that they're well. uh, I was wondering how you'd handle that. Yes. Now, that that is very delicate because you really need always to have parents on side. Uh, They're the ones who actually bring and they're the ones responsible and the ones who are the experts in their child anyway. It's not us. Yes. But if they hand over the expertise, that's really an uncomfortable. And, And that's it. One of the inherent grieving parts of uh, of being a therapist is that when somebody starts to come and see you and gets better, you in fact have to say goodbye. Yeah. You have to let go, and that is central to the therapeutic process, both ways. Mm-hmm. Now, how wise those words are, Mixif, because one of the major themes in this Congress, which I took away, and there were many, it was a real smorgasbord. We had keynote speakers, business meetings for the faculty sections and uh, various uh, specialist interests, workshops, um, uh, lectures, posters. We had the lot. Yeah. And, of course, we had a social life as well, mm-hmm. um, after hours and sometimes between sessions. But the point here was that we addressed themes, and this is one of the great highlights, of our own transitions as specialists. How we go from being trainees and beginners, when we perhaps might take a compliment on face value and may even get a bit big-headed, like, you know, hey, I'm really eaten a bit, and then, of course, you crash big time because that wasn't intended as a compliment like in a social setting. And then as we get more established and perhaps more grounded and a little bit more savvy, we take compliments with a grain of salt. And hopefully we don't get cynical as we age uh, and we don't take our experience as evidence of us getting better. Because sometimes the ongoing experience works against us if we don't actually do something. And what the question was raised in this Congress, what do we do to counter our big-headedness? And the keynote if I want to just reduce it to one word, is feedback. We must always expose ourselves and our work to feedback which happens in peer review groups. There is no substitute for bringing our dilemmas, our triumphs indeed, if we have them, our failures to a sort of trusted, intimate, professional group called a peer review group, which is compulsory in our college, and regularly review and vet all the details of what we struggle with. So I don't want to take too an extreme view on that, but I mean, I think medicine does this reasonably well across all specialties and all forms of practice is reviewing uh, clinical decision making. Um, And it's done very um, privately. Uh, And the fear that uh, in organising a department and talking about uh, incorrect decisions or decisions, misdiagnoses, of course, is that that, uh, for some, presents uh, an issue that it could become a legal issue and they would be sued. Um, 
and that that's often an inhibitory part to that conversation but nonetheless currently i think we can do this a lot better across the board mm. i think probably psychiatry do it better than most of the other specialties but we are often engaged in looking through a clinical case and uh, uh, having a discussion amongst our colleagues and saying well you know those signs equal that diagnosis and that diagnosis wasn't established at that time um and but some you know you have to you have to take that in context given the circumstances of the time and your medical knowledge at the time that differential didn't arise in your head now that's not malpractice you're still practicing at the level that you should be practicing at uh amongst your and as judged by your colleagues Maybe the public would think that that needs to be broader, that, in fact, we need to have external people review our performances. I mean, this this day is coming. Uh, we will be... Well, we are managed. really, as was highlighted, we are living in the age of accountability mm. in medicine. Mm. Mm. And the experience in the States, a classic case in point, is uh, cystic fibrosis. And they had a national uh, rating of all the ex- centres of excellence. Mm. And unfortunately, they found, or fortunately, they found that the two lead authors of the guidelines of cystic fibrosis were heading a unit which came in at the bottom 25%. But of came the in national. on what measures? Outcomes, do you mean? Now, this is outcome measures. Because now, that's, they, they could be attracting the most difficult cases. This is why you be careful. Be. It, it absolutely could be. However, what they found, to their credit, that their level of feedback was not up to the other centres. And indeed they created a self-fulfilling prophecy saying, well, this is such a condition with a high mortality rate, therefore we would expect that. Now, what we come to within our own specialty of psychiatry is, of course, there are very few objective markers, unlike even in neurology, where signs and symptoms are much more directly linked to actual neuropathology. So one of the questions that's coming up, not only do we have softer symptoms and signs and open to subjective interpretations, but the very framework we've been working on for 30 years is undergoing profound change. An example, what we were trained in in our early days, at least myself as a dinosaur from the last century, was the chemical imbalance theory of a number of conditions, most notably depression. And therefore, there was very good evidence at that time from what was called a synapse, which is the meeting of two neurons, that if certain chemicals were missing, you'd give a drug, classic one being SSRI, it would increase the serotonin level. The theory was that there's a deficiency in depression, and presto, you're well. Mm. Now, that hasn't sort of... Uh, become invalid, but it's been overridden by much more sophisticated theoretical frameworks that have to account for experiences that neuroscience has now documented as evidence. And one of the central areas is, of course, trauma, which is one of the only two conditions in the whole of psychiatry that has got an organic basis, the other being obviously substance abuse. Now, we have to now account for the neuroscience discoveries in terms of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, uh, neural networks, default mode networks, and so on, which the language didn't even exist in my training days. 
Now, how as practitioners who've been around for the 30th decade, three decades, actually integrate both the soft science, which is psychiatry, this is the heading of the Congress, which is the art, with an emerging science that didn't exist 15, 20 years ago. So, on the one hand, we're both at a very exciting time, but incredibly challenging, and one of the areas that is in the cutting edge was in fact mentioned on Triple R, I think, last couple of weeks, was the MetFest, which was using medical movies uh, to educate both doctors and the public. Now, I have to say that one of the highlights was uh, uh, the Channel 2 series Changing Minds, a three-part doco from last year that was screened part of Mental Health Week. And one of the presentations was a symposium uh, that included the producer, the uh, doctor involved, the consultant, the Professor Victor Storm, who, just to uh, add a feather to my cap, acknowledged that he was one of my trainees many years ago. <laughs> and is there a nicer feeling that one of your trainees is now a professor and doing work like this? I mean, <sighs> there are rewards in teaching. Anyway, Some of mine are out of rehab now. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Let me catch my breath on that See, one. See, yeah, rooster, rooster one day, feather duster the next. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The point that Victor and his team brought up was the changing attitudes towards privacy and ethics. In my day, it was a, a non-starter to even ask a patient whether they would like to go on radio or TV, and we have various guidelines to protect their privacy, confidentiality when we write about them. Here, this was an institution, Liverpool Hospital, actually passed ethics committee standards. The hospital gave permission, the ABC gave an all clear, meaning all the legal people ticked off that this was going to be safe. Mm. And it was one of the great achievements of last year's educating of the public. So we're living in a different time. The ethics and boundaries around privacy and confidentiality provided its with integrity mm. Mm. and that's the essence if we have integrity in our clinical work in our research in our peer review <coughs> i think tall man you raise an incredibly delicate issue the fear of litigation mm. but i'm just wondering how far that is in the minds of us as professionals that if we are seen to acknowledge our mistakes we are fallible mm our patients will actually respect us more mm. and less likely to take legal action. Yeah, look, I think we actually do introduce that uh, even in clinical teaching uh, at an undergraduate level where, you know, in today's world, no, you, you can present yourself to your medical practice to do your best every day mm. and you can do that for 30 or 40 years Eventually, one day, you are not going to, the, the ducks won't line up in your mind and a mistake will be made yeah. and you will be sued. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's not, it's about um, putting that in p the perspective of the arc of your career. Yes. Um, and it's not something you go looking for because I do think that in the majority of cases, uh, doctors um, are presenting themselves to do their best. 
Although I think there is uh, some malleability around that, as, 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 Mal, as Mal was saying, because yeah, that, that situation where you may be sued may present itself, in other words, where you're vulnerable, but there is some evidence that full disclosure, good communication, um, rapid um, damage control, rapid um, full communication, rapid re-referral, mm. these mm. things can reduce the risk mm. that the family's going to go, you prick, and sue yeah. you. They, yeah. they can but actually say, oh, we done, understand that yeah. you've made a mistake. Thank yeah. you for telling us. Yeah. All right. You, it you shouldn't know. be done for the fear of litigation. No, it, it should be done because it's best practice. And both those things line up in that case. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So just to wind up on that very sobering note, uh, for those listeners who would like a, a really accessible how-to book in, in the context of the neuroscience, um, the title is Four Ways to Click. Uh, unfortunately, the subtitle is Rewire Your Brain for Stronger, More Rewarding Relationships. But <laughs> as Dr. Amy Banks, a Harvard psychiatrist and clinical practitioner, uh, makes clear in this book, it's very readable. If you found Norman Doidge's book, although that's readable too, but a little <coughs> bit above you and or just highfalutin, this is the book for you. And a similar one, if you're more a historical buff, uh, Jeffrey Lieberman, uh, a highly distinguished psychiatrist from Columbia, New York, uh, currently published Shrinks, the Untold Story of Psychiatry. Uh, a little bit New York-centric, but let's not criticise that. There is the rest of the world as well included occasionally and an excellent section on military psychiatry and because last month we attended to the topic of Anzac Day 100 years on, this is a must read for anyone interested in military history with trauma and its relevance to the development of trauma history in psychiatry Fascinating I might uh, have a go at that one I think that looks extraordinary. This is the shrink the tall man was pointing to, not the self-help one. Yeah, that's <laughs> just to clarify that, okay? You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. This is Radiotherapy. Sigmund McSiff. And, uh, Tolman, uh, having just been in New York, which uh, Malice just referred to, I was struck on my travels... At, by the this extraordinary contrast between the heights that society can reach and the some of the um, some of the the wonders of culture and science and architecture, uh, and what an extraordinary place! And at the same time, the remarkably large number of homeless and clearly mentally ill people, those who fall through the cracks, and uh, it, it it causes one. Uh, reason to stop and think what is it that is going on in our society in our community where we have reached uh we have such ex such wonderful treatments available for people we have uh, uh excellent departments of health we have wonderful hospitals we have the ability to look after large numbers of people but clearly there are those who, for a multitude of reasons, are not being adequately looked after and are very obvious. You just need to go down to the subway. You need to walk through Central Park. You need to go anywhere along the street. There are people who are begging. There are people who are clearly homeless. There are people who are lying on benches. And... Uh, I, I think this is probably what one sees now in most major metropolitan landscapes. And uh, 
it, it caused me to stop and think, you know, what actually happened? I mean, in most uh, Western countries, liberal democracies, perhaps uh, 20 to 30 years ago, we had this policy of deinstitutionalization. There was this process whereby people who were previously looked after in the large asylums, in the large mental health institutions, for a range of reasons, those asylums were closed down. Primarily, I think they were closed down for government-driven financial reasons because they were very costly to run. The theory was that the money that would be become available from the sale of these massive parcels of real estate and from all of the staff that were involved in, uh, in running these asylums, that that money would all be put into the community care of people with serious mental illness. Now, as we know, most of the people who were in asylums had very serious psychiatric disorders. Mostly they were chronic schizophrenia, um, uh, unremitting bipolar disorder. There were people who were very unwell and who, despite the best forms of treatment, needed long-term hospitalization. But surely one of the one of the things that actually another enabler of the closure of those institutions was the evolution of, of therapies, of chemical therapies. Precisely. And it was, uh, it was hoped and it was a wonderful idea that you would provide this treatment in the community with appropriate support so that people would go into transitional housing and accommodation, they would have regular support from expert community mental health workers and that they would be getting not only um, equivalent but better mental health treatment in the community and they would be spared the ravages of institutionalization because all of us who've worked uh, in our training or in our careers or both in, uh, in large mental health institutions know that institutionalization is a major problem not just for patients but for staff as well. Uh, can, can I just uh, put a counterpoint here? The, the institutions, you know, not being a good place to be, it is very relative to the person that's actually in them. If the, you know, those institutions may have served their purpose for um, that may be a better life being in an institution uh, rather than actually being on the streets. Absolutely. And now you don't have those institutions. So where are those people who couldn't actually, who can't actually function satisfactorily in the community and for whom the services are not there? Because what actually happened is that those funds that were supposed to be made available they weren't made available to anywhere near the level that should that they, that should have been provided. So the view was too optimistic that this would you know people could live normally within within the social construct, but in fact they still needed high levels of support. They needed enormous levels of support, yeah, and and, 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 and I might add that the people who are working in the community mental health clinics, in these small and streamlined um, mental health units in the hospitals, uh, the people who are working in the CAT teams, they are doing an extraordinary extraordinary job. They are working incredibly hard. They are overworked. They are overburdened because the demand is so high. 
but we cannot seem to meet the need. And so we have a problem. We have a disconnect between the level of demand of the seriously mentally ill and the, the ability for governments to provide sufficient funding for that need. So this is why we have people falling through the cracks. This is why we have people who are seriously unwell with serious mental illnesses. And where are they? Well, they're either in prison or they're on the street. And that is a problem. That is a big problem for our society. Uh, so are you going to solve this? Well, well, what, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? I mean, we have thrown l- huge numbers, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, as a, in, in, in our community at the Headspace Initiative. Uh, and only recently... Uh, I've become aware that there's been some controversy as to the the efficacy. So people are questioning, you know, I, I mentioned before about bang for buck. Yeah. Are we actually getting adequate bang for our buck for these hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent? Now, it's really interesting. When you talk to different child psychiatrists, um, we know that the time to intervene in mental health, the earlier you intervene, the better the outcome. Yeah. If you hold off, yep. you can spend an enormous amount of money for very, very little change. Yep. When you can identify a problem, get in early. Whatever the, the area of endeavor is, the sooner you get in there, the better the outcome. Whether it's learning, whether it's speech and language, whether it's physical health, whether it's mental health, get in early and you're going to get a better response. If you can, in fact, prevent the onset of the very conditions that are so troublesome for our society, then you are likely to have a much better outcome. So what are the sort of things that we should be doing in terms of prevention? We should be maximizing the inherent supports and structures that that are advantageous to the mental health of children. So whatever the family structure is, and we have modern and changing and diverse family structures, whatever that family structure is, we should be supporting that. So keeping the primary caregiver at home in the critical early developmental stages of a child's life, we should be supporting that in every way, shape, and form. So Tony Abbott's got it right. Tony Abbott had it right in theory, wrong in implementation, and now he's backtracked to for his own political reasons, but not for the betterment of our society. I mean, it's uh, it, it it's just really disappointing. I mean, let's look. Uh, <laughs> Ad- Adabolics is having uh, cataplexy. No, come on, so, so, <coughs> Doctor Adabolics, um, let it let it rip. I, no, look, I no, just we're, we're diverting from we're yeah, diverting so, from the homeless so, topic. So I maximizing just... maximizing the the role of family in. Uh, you know, supporting people in terms of their functioning within the family, okay. supporting young mothers. How do you identify it? Because so in 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 medicine, we're very good at saying, look, this is this is this is a set of normal parameters. If you're outside these parameters, you need uh, special attention. And, and we do it in hospitals. We get met calls on patients that have blipped their their respiratory rate, their pulse rate, their blood pressure. They're outside normal parameters, and they get immediate urgent attention to to identify what's gone wrong and to adjust it. So, so maternal and child health care nurses are a critical okay. part of identifying early and at-risk problems. Many, many years ago, 
a wonderful psychiatrist who came here from the UK, Eric Cunningham Dax, went down to uh, Tasmania and wrote a seminal paper on multi-problem families. He identified that the vast, like more than 95% of the cost of healthcare in Tasmania was being eaten up by more th- by, by less than 5% of the population. And uh, so you had these families who um, uh, the, the mothers gave birth at a very young age, they gave birth to low birth weight children, they smoked, they used alcohol, they used illicit substances, they had forensic difficulties, they had poor relationships, they were absent fathers, and there was this cascading problem which just was perpetuated from generation to generation. And uh, and you, you can keep throwing money at a problem like that for very, very little response. But if you get in early and you provide adequate support, you provide psychoeducation, you provide supports within the community, you give people a direction out of the problems uh, that, that, have been, uh, that have been occurring, you can then... Uh, 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 you can then uh, basically move on. You can you've got a, a route out of the difficulties that you're encountering. So we need to have a shift from intervention to prevention, and uh, I, I I think that that's that is absolutely critical. Now that's not going to necessarily help the person who's on the street, who's homeless now, and who's clearly mentally ill. But we do know that there are. If, if we provide the structures and supports within the community, if we provide the funding for the community mental health clinics, if we increase the robustness of the availability of crisis uh, assessment teams, we can actually do more to help these people. Accommodation is absolutely essential. If we provide appropriate accommodation, you can decrease so many of the toxic things which occur. Education within the community about the dangers of the toxic mind-altering substances that are now available. You know, we're finally talking about the ICE epidemic, and thank goodness we are, because anybody who works in mental health is only too aware of the toxicity of this pernicious substance. There's nothing attractive, there's nothing romantic, there's nothing exciting about crystal methamphetamines. We know that the toxicity these days of um, of cannabis, the cannabis that uh, people are using. It's not the cannabis that you were um, not inhaling at University Tallman all of those years ago. This is a different sort of, uh, this is a different drug and it's risky. He said it's, it's I didn't risky. inhale. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so we need to take a multifactorial approach because there's, I mean, I, I personally found it terribly distressing yes. to see on corner after corner after corner people who are clearly terribly unwell. Well, I, I do think, I'm actually not a um, headspace basher at all. I used to work at Headspace for a while, and I've got very good, uh, a very good feeling about it. And I think this is one of the things they do try and do. They do try and be a one-stop shop for young people from between you know, 12 and 25 who, are, who self-select or who their teachers select or who their parents bring in or who walk in the door or they're homeless. And that, they do try and get in early and try and provide a very broad range of... So I, I do think they... That, I'm that not is, a Headspace basher that, yeah, either, so, but so I, I, think think that, that, I think we need to validate yeah. the efficacy of of our treatments, particularly when sure. large amounts of taxpayers' money is being is being delivered to a particular organisation. We need to make sure that what we're doing 
is working. Well, one other way, of, you can divide the pie up differently or you can increase the size of the pie, I guess. And if um, the, the, the number of days of sickness in our community is a large, a very large chunk is caused by mental illness and, and drug use, then probably the, a rational way of doing it would be to have the same percentage of the funding for care lined up with that figure. And we're way below that. So the pie totally should increase. Agree. The pie totally should agree. increase. Yeah, we need a smart pie. Mm. Could, could I just offer, uh, a, from a different perspective, maybe a new pie, not the same one sliced differently? And what I heard McZiff's message was the old metaphor, if you are walking on Swanson Street Bridge and you see two or three people struggling in the water below you in the Yarra, mm. you can jump in and bring them out. Or you can go upstream and actually find out where they're actually falling in. And if they're lining up in the hundreds and you actually talk to that group who are jumping in by the hundreds, you might have no one downstream. Now, the question is, where is headspace? Is that at the next bridge or is it going really upstream? And what I hear from Exif's intergenerational pie is let's go back to the very earliest mother-infant or carer-infant relationship, which is where the brain is structured All of the alcohol, drug, ice and other uh, chemicals have got a reason why some people take it. It's not just recreation. That's the social commentary. There are brain structural differences in those infants who had privation and deprivation. And if that's not recognised an intervention, as mentioned, at that earlier stage, they're already floating down the arrow. And and I think that the fetal alcohol syndrome... I mean that that is the is the prime example, and if we don't think along those lines, you know we're stuffed. Three triple R. Hand over to Dr. Anna Box. You've been trying to do this segment, what, two months? Oh, yeah. Look, I've been bumped the last two times, so I'm going get, to get the last word. <laughs> get in, get in. No, look, it's been a fascinating discussion already, and it's all very relevant. And look, I just wanted to report back on some interesting stuff that came from the Addiction in Medicine conference in Melbourne a couple of months ago now, which is a very good conference if um, people, you know, health workers are interested in going on to a really good, interesting conference. I think it's a, uh, every second year. I've been to it a couple of times now, and I found it very um, useful. Mm-hmm. This is a, a conference which focuses on uh, drug and alcohol use and abuse, but in particular looking through the the medical and social consequences and the health consequences and things like that. So it's quite a good, uh, quite a good um, prism to look through it. And uh, I just wanted to report on a couple of key speakers and key presentations, um, just to give you a bit of an update on what's happening. Now, one of the main speakers was Professor David Nutt, N-U-T-T, from the UK. Psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Uh, How appropriate. I'm, I'm, now, I'm, now you've said that... I'm changed his I'm, name by deed, Paul, from Paul. <laughs> <laughs> now you've said that I'm going to have to check on my list. No, but he's the head of neuro psychopharmacology oh, so, a psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, okay. at Hammersmith Hospital and also yeah. the president of the European Brain Council. So he's been around and done a bit and a fascinating speaker, very experienced guy. Now, I'm going to start with a question. What is the most harmful drug in the UK? What is the most harmful? And remember, when we talk about harms in the drug and alcohol field, we talk about harms. It's a very particular word. Yes. We look at, like, social costs, health costs, public, public costs, um, you know. What is the most harmful drug in the United Kingdom? What do you reckon? Yeah, we tobacco. See. No. Mm. 
Kent's got it. Alcohol. Yeah. By a country mile. Okay. Yeah. So and it's and uh, the the figures translate to Australia uh, very yeah. very similarly. Lots of luck with turning that drug off. Okay. So this this is so whilst we whilst we sort of think about you know this this awful ice epidemic is happening now, um, we and w- one of the things that allows us I think to take a step back is because uh, you know it's, it's a little bit of a squirrel. You know. <laughs> <laughs> we we really don't want to acknowledge what's actually causing uh, mm. the most harm in our in our community, and um, alcohol is w- without a doubt. So looking at the global burden of disease, ethanol is number five. In other words, it leads to more than three million premature deaths worldwide annually. More than three million premature deaths. It's the leading cause of disability disability in the fifteen to twenty four year olds in in the UK, and the leading cause of death in males under fifty in the UK. The leading cause of death. Most of that is mediated through liver disease. A lot of it is through liver disease. And liver disease under 65 in the UK has risen over 500% in the last 40 years in the UK. And 80% of that has been mediated through alcohol-related liver disease. They're huge figures. Huge figures, yeah. So, look, absolutely on board with this. And I just want to, again, sort of point to the complexity Mm-hmm. That this sort of discussion causes, you know, we're not talking about prohibition here. No, no. And if we if not. we take an organisation in Australia like the AFL, which have relatively successfully disengaged themselves from alcohol sponsorship and alcohol culture with playing football, they, they've they've done a reasonable job. Whether it's deliberate or it just happened that way, but it's been replaced with gambling. Mm. Um, which which also causes an enormous amount of social dislocation and harm mm. uh, at a financial and therefore all the other you know you can just see it's a cascade. So these issues, I mean, the, the, we sound like we're wowsers when we start talking about this, but it is it's the it's the discussion that we've never really thoroughly had. Why, why would it be a wowserism to talk about um, sensible use of, uh, of a drink when you wouldn't consider it wowserism to talk about you know, excess salt? You wouldn't consider it wowserism to excess cholesterol? No, why, I'm why, saying that, the social that, that, that perception. A, that yeah. word has got a social background That's that goes right. back to the temperance movement yeah. in the 1890s, for yes. God's sake. Yeah. Yes. This, is a, this, is a, this is a substance that we, that we use regularly, legally, and I'm absolutely not, a, not for prohibition. I never have, you know, I've never yeah. have been. Yeah. People should be free to use whatever they want. I would suggest people think about it differently. That's all I'm suggesting. But can you, can you regulate this? That is, people that have a... I'll come to that. Okay. Okay. Right. So I'll let me just... Because he presented a very interesting fact about exactly that, Tom man. So let me just go on to... He also presented figures that said that um, alcohol dependence is the highest, has the highest treatment gap of all the psychological disorders. In other words, 92% of people who would benefit from treatment do not receive any help. For all the people who have dependency issues and abuse issues with, of alcohol, 92% will never receive any help. Oh, this is a, you know, as a health issue. Interestingly, half of, if you ask all 15 to 16-year-olds in the UK and su- some, uh, survey them, half of them are getting drunk, drunk at least once a month. 15-year-olds are getting drunk once a month in the UK, and those figures haven't changed in the last 20 years. And we know, as you said before, um, Amal, that the uh, implications for pathway development and Synapse development is huge in these in these young kids. Okay, now he also he also talked interestingly about the death of Amy Winehouse, which is a tragedy. Now, people will remember at the time of her death, there was a lot of speculation that she died from a drug overdose. Mm. Um, but in fact, and uh, and Dr. Nutt was involved with the case. 
Uh, in fact, she had been in rehab and was, had been sober for about six weeks when she died, and she'd just come out of rehab. And so prior to her death, um, she'd had six weeks of no alcohol, and then she had came out and she went on a bender, and on the night of, of she died, she had an entire bottle of vodka, and her blood alcohol level was five and a half times the legal driving limit in, in the UK, and she had no other drugs on board. So lit- she literally dro- died by drinking a bottle of vodka. And as people may know, um, t- when you have a period of withdrawal from um, substances that do affect your brain, and then you have a high dose, your tolerance is down, and you're much more at risk, mm. and people will die in their sleep. They, they fold up their larynx, they can't breathe, and they yeah. slow their breathing and they die. Yep. And that's what happened to her. Very tragic. So, um, you know, it was, it's interesting. I don't think we appreciate how many deaths from alcohol, you know, in this way occurring in Australia you know, as, as we speak. Now, the other thing that um, he also talked about, the, the net harms from alcohol. Now, you may remember there was some discussion a few years ago about uh, you, you, you live longer if you have a glass of uh, alcohol every day. Red wine. Okay, so he reviewed those figures, you know, in the light of the last few years' uh, statistics. Uh, he, he said what, what that actually showed was that there, in one area of harm measurement, which was uh, ischemic heart disease, having one or two glasses of red wine did uh, confer a small uh, uh, benefit, in other words, population benefit. People comparing people who did drink one glass of wine or, wh- or who, do, who didn't had a small decrease in the amount of ischemic heart disease risk. However, uh, against that, heart disease is only one area that can be affected by alcohol. Mm. And he went through the statistics at every age group and he said if you match that against uh, ischemic heart disease with the other potential harms of alcohol, the liver disease, brain disease, trauma, traumatic deaths, there is no age at which uh, alcohol confers a net benefit. There's, whether you're 16, 65, 45, at no age is it actually better for, for your age group population to drink a lot of alcohol than it is not to. It's, mm. It does not confer a net benefit because the benefit of ischemic heart disease is way outweighed by the other risks that you're putting yourself into. So those, I think that was interesting, interesting figures. Um, and so the other chap, and this is coming to what you were asking before, there's another chap from New South Wales, Professor Gordon Fuldy, who was a very interesting speaker. He's the head of emergency medicine at St Vincent's Hospital in Darlinghurst. And he presented some extraordinary figures from New South Wales. Now, um, if you, he looked at the figures of people coming into um, uh, A&E. If you have three standard drinks in one evening, you, are, you increase your risk of attending an A&E by a factor of five. If you have 10 standard drinks, you increase your risk of attending an A&E that night by a factor of 10. And everyone who knows about, you know, has been an A&E on a Saturday night, you'll know how the staff just dread Saturday yes. night because yes. be, there's going to be vomit, blood, fists, shackling, all over. It's, people just get pissed every night and come in. So your, your actual risk of coming to A&E is massively increased. Now, they in um, Darlinghurst, about a couple of years ago, they had cha- a change in the laws about this coming to what you're asking about. And they... Um, the government introduced some local changes in the lockout rules for clubs. They had a lot of big clubs around the area, and they introduced a 1am one, 1 to 3am lockout for clubs. They had a 3am last drink rule, and they had a no shots or spirits after midnight rule. And Dr Fuldy uh, and his team at the A&E in Darlinghurst, Vincent's, compared all the attendance figures and the, and the diagnosis figures before and after that was introduced, and there was a massive change, a yeah. massive reduction. They, had, um, uh, they looked in two categories. 
the violence, assaults and motor car accidents that came in that were associated with alcohol and the uh, um, other health-related uh, emergencies like gastric bleeding, acute intoxication, things like that. And there was a marked decrease in, 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 all, in both those categories. So, so it did actually, um, particularly Sunday night, Friday to Sunday night and particularly late at night, those figures dramatically dropped. So that's an example of where the local laws really did clearly have an impact on our health and the, the cost saving of that is, you can imagine, yes. how much we pay for nurses and doctors and ambos at 3am on Saturday morning. You reduce that by 10% yes. and um, massive, a massive saving. So really interesting talk and, you know, um, it, that's, that's our, that's if we reduced a high-end high end drinking by 10%, our, our health figures in this area would dramatically decrease. Absolutely. Uh, I'd say that was really sobering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better actually wrap up because the scientists are kicking the door down. But wonderful segments, really interesting discussion. I feel like I need a beer. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll come back next week. It's, it's us on again. What do I do? Yeah. What do I, I do, Tom, man? We'll come back next week and, uh, and start this, this whole schmozzle again. But in the meantime, we're going to hand over to the scientists. So thanks for listening. La Grosse Radio pour des grands enfants. Triple RFM. Big radio for big kids, is that right? Oh, right, okay. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.